Bill and my dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord, young people, we have just sung together a hymn which is taken from Psalm 37, entirely appropriate for the circumstances of our study this morning. For we read, we sang together of, that, of the circumstances of life in which there are those who are ungodly and evildoers, and the psalm tells us to fret not thyself because of this thing, nor have envy to those that bear iniquity, for they shall be as grass. And that's the circumstances that faced Nehemiah as he looked at the problems before him and determined his course of action. Surrounded as he was by evildoers, surrounded as he was by dissenters, by those workers of iniquity, he courageously put his face, fixed his face as it were, to go to Jerusalem and to accomplish those things that he felt Yahweh had directed him to. And of course in Psalm 37, you have the words that we have sung together. Verse 3, Trust in Yahweh and do good and thou shalt dwell in the land. It doesn't matter that from time to time we may be faced with difficulties and problems. Yahweh has established for us the confidence in his purpose and his due time. We must trust in him and do good. Then the psalmist says in verse 3 of Psalm 37, So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. The word verily is in the Hebrew the word amen. We use it at the end of our prayers. Through Jesus Christ, amen. The word means to be faithful, to be true, to be complete. And thus when we say, thou shalt be fed, and we attend the word verily, we are saying we have absolute confidence that Yahweh is faithful, notwithstanding what he will do. Thus when we use the word amen in our prayers, we are not saying we're signing off. We're not saying this is the conclusion of our comments, our prayer ceases now. We're saying we have absolute confidence that what we have petitioned of Yahweh, if it is according to his will, he will grant it. It may not come now, brethren and sisters. It may not be today. It may not even be tomorrow, but it certainly will come when Yahweh sees the value of it. And that's why we say through Jesus Christ, Amen. We have confidence in our God that he will hear this prayer and that he will answer it according to his wonderful wisdom. So in verse 5, as we delight ourselves in Yahweh and he shall give us the desires of our heart, it says, commit thy way unto him. Have a look in your margin. It says, roll away, or roll thy way upon Yahweh. It comes from the word Gilgal. That Gilgal was the place where the people of Israel came over the Jordan and there they were circumcised. They rolled away their approach. And they did that in the face of the Canaanites, the city of Jericho, which was straightly shut up. They, they committed their way unto Yahweh, for who could fight under those circumstances? And all the men had to circumcise themselves as Yahweh required. Who could fight Jericho at that time? And in rolling away their reproach, they had to throw themselves on God that he would protect them during that period. And that's where we stand, brethren and sisters. We stand, as did David, as he penned this word, this psalm, and we need to roll ourselves upon Yahweh, upon his way. That means to lean upon him, to trust in him, that he will strengthen us in due course, notwithstanding 
the challenges of life that face us and he will bring it to pass. That's a prayer. That's the prayer of James chapter 5. And as we concluded our study yesterday, we made a brief comment to James chapter 5, suggesting that you look it up during the intervening hours. We look at it now and we'll observe the seven prayers in this particular chapter, prayers which form such an important part in the life of Nehemiah and about which we will look at them from time to time as we study his book. But first we'll just make a brief comment on these seven prayers of James chapter 5 verses 13 to 18. You have in verse 13 a personal prayer. A personal prayer, an individual prayer, if you are afflicted let let him pray. If he only is merry, let him sing psalms, which are prayers of melody. They are individual, personal prayers. Verse 14 is a united prayer. Is any sick among you? Let him call together those who may help him in the ecclesia, those who can strengthen and, and direct him in the ecclesia, and they shall pray over him, as John uses in his first, chap, first epistle, chapter 5, speaking of a sin which doesn't lead to death. Here are united prayers where a family might gather together, parents and children, or brethren and sisters in the truth, that they might strengthen each other in the circumstances of life. In verse 15 you have a believing prayer. The prayer of faith shall save the sick and Yahweh shall raise him up. A prayer that seeks for alleviation in certain circumstances and if it is according to the divine will he shall, he shall raise him up. In verse 16, mutual prayers where there is an injury one with another. Matthew 18 is the principle here. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. As we may see another in a certain fault We have a desire to help them and and, and strengthen them as Matthew 18 tells us. Those words that are the words of a shepherd who sees a diseased sheep and he goes to lift him up and help him. That's what Matthew 18 is about. It's not about destroying brethren and sisters, it's about restoring. And we do that when we confess our faults one to another. The end of that verse 16 is the fifth prayer. It speaks of fervent prayers. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What power is in that voice, that those words? Fervency, effectual, effectual prayer of a righteous man, they are all important in the context, availeth a tremendous amount. In verse 17 you have verse, uh, the sixth class classification of prayer, earnest prayer. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was, he was, he felt the similar strains of life as he tried to deliver the message to his people. And he prayed earnestly that Yahweh would complement his judgments. It was an earnest prayer for, for Yahweh's help that it might not rain and Yahweh answered in this miracle, this remarkable circumstance. And the final prayer is that of continual prayers. He prayed again. And the rain gave, gave it forth, the earth brought forth her fruit. 
So it was an instant prayer, a continual prayer, an earnest prayer. And here we have the whole ambit of our prayers in the truth, both amongst ourselves and for one another. It's extremely important in these days of our opportunity to engage in prayer. So when we come back to the uh, words of, of Nehemiah, the leader, the governor of Israel, we will be looking at his prayers as we proceed through his book. I would suggest that, um, as I have found it very valuable myself, that you colour in the prayers found in the book of Nehemiah. Colour in two things. Colour in the prayers and colour in the prophets. The hand of providence. The good hand of our God upon me. So that when you read through this book, those principles jump out at you and constantly remind you of the basis of Nehemiah's victory and success. Two things, cooperation with God, pray to him and see him working in your life in answer to that prayer. The good hand of our God upon us. Now in chapter 1 we have Nehemiah's example of a, an acceptable prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5 to verse 11, accepting the last sentence. Now here is the first opening prayer upon which the whole book is based. Notice how the prayer is structured. Prayers are recorded in the scripture for our edification to teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray, said the disciples. And the master gave a praise of a model prayer, complimenting those which are already in the inspired word. The first thing we must observe in acceptable prayer is the reference to God's character. Verse 5. I beseech thee, O Yahweh, Elohim of heaven, the great and terrible ale that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. It's an approach to the Father. It's an acknowledgement of who he is. It's an expression of his wondrous character. It's a declaration of our own humility and insignificance in the sight of him with whom we have to do. And thus, Nehemiah presents for us his character, Yahweh's character, and he rests securely upon the wonderful attributes by which God is known. He's both powerful and he's merciful. He keeps covenant and he provides mercy for those that love him and keep his commandments. Now that is the beginning of a prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Was what the, was the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, parallel to these words here. Now in verse 8, uh, verse 6, sorry, you have a humble petition of Nehemiah to seek his hearing in the court of heaven. Let thine ear be attentive and thine eye upon that thou mayest hear the prayer. Those three principles are brought together. Listen, look and appreciate the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now this day. If we are found in, com uh, in um, uh, circumstances if we are found in difficult circumstances, I can't think of the word. Compromised. Compromised circumstances. Would we pray to God to look down upon us? 
if we're in a situation in which we ought not to be, are we going to, ask, going to ask God to look down upon us and hear us that his prayer might, uh, that his eyes might be open? Of course not. And under those circumstances, we've got to roll back onto Yahweh, commit our way to him, circumcise ourselves, and commit our ways more perfectly to him. That's why in verse 7, there's a confession of sins. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, says Nehemiah, speaking on behalf of the nation, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Nehemiah recognised that the trouble that had come upon Jerusalem and the reason for the burnt bricks was that they had rejected the truth. That they had cast aside the principles of truth. So, like our Lord himself, who looks down upon us and bears up our iniquities, he appropriately recognises and acknowledges sin. And we must do the same. An acknowledgement of our failings is the basis of a true approach to him who is pure. Him who, who is altogether pure. It promotes a humility and a recognition of our personal needs. And now in verse 9 he has a remembrance of the divine promises. He brings into his mind the word which God has stated. He's got to know what it is, first of all. He's got to read his Bible. He's got to understand what are these great and precious promises by which we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. So he says in verse 9, If you will turn unto me uh, through those... (coughs) Verse 8. Verse 8 is the... Verse 8, Remember I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you among the nations. That was a recognition of the promises given. And in verse 9, But if you will turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather thee from thence and bring thee into the place which I have chosen to set my name there. I have chosen to set my name in this place. Thus he acknowledges Yahweh's goodness, Yahweh's purpose, because of these, for the sakes of the fathers. Romans chapter 11 verse 28. For the fathers' sakes, he, he presents and reminds this and reminds Yahweh of this. The divine promises are the foundation of our faith. We've got to bear those in mind as we seek the petition of our God. They are both the foundation of our faith and the foundation of our action. Remember the words we quoted from the second of Peter, chapter 1, verse 4? There are given unto us great and precious promises that by means of these we might be partakers of the divine nature, foundation of faith, having escaped, foundation of action, the corruption in the world through lust. And then you have in verse 10, the the, the redemption that God had manifested in the past is the basis for his trust and faith that he would continue the divine blessings. 
Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou redeemed by thy great hand, by thy great power and by thy strong hand. They came out of Egypt. Remember Moses holding his rod over the waters of the sea and the sea parted and the people went through barefoot on dry ground and when Pharaoh and his host came thundering past behind them then they were engulfed in the destruction turned about like a washing machine and as the people of Israel on the other side of the Red Sea saw that they said Yahweh is a man of war he hath triumphed gloriously Pharaoh and his hosts are cast into the sea well we saw that happen in our lives when we were baptised we saw that happen as we ourselves were involved in that destruction, that victory over Pharaoh and thus Yahweh blessed us by bringing us to a knowledge of the truth and providing opportunity for that cleansing process and thus he will take us into his kingdom the basis of Yahweh's victories in the past for us are to be find expression in the, our prayers as we come before him and now I, an impassioned plea concludes this prayer an impassioned plea for help in time of need. But look at what it's based upon. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man who desire to fear thy name. That is the ones whom he asks for Yahweh to care for. He doesn't pray for the world at large, brethren and sisters. He prays for those who desire to fear thy name. And Yahweh cannot save those who do not see that need. Yahweh cannot save the great, majority, the great masses of people unless the people come to him first with forgive, seeking forgiveness. And we pray in vain for Yahweh to, to convert the world because it's not his purpose. It's with those who desire to fear thy name. Rotherham has that as desire, or delight, sorry, delight to revere the name. That's an attitude that covers a multitude of sins. David was a man who revered the name, delighted in it. I delight to do thy will, O God. David was a man after God's own heart, but of his sins, brethren and sisters, those recorded for us in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, grave sins, but his desire, his delight in the name of Yahweh was the means by which he was forgiven. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he who breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the brethren of Jesus Christ for whom Christ died. He who said of himself, I was before blasphemer and injurious, though I did it in unbelief and ignorance, but he acknowledged that I am the least of those who are chosen to be an apostle. But his attitude, his love of God, his delight to revere the name was the means by which those matters were forgiven and covered. We're not able to manifest complete obedience. We're like Nehemiah who prayed for a sinful ecclesia. But we can reveal our love for God. 
and a child who though is wayward in so many ways, disobeying the parents' commandments, uh, is still a precious child if they love and revere the name. They come back to you in their time of need and they say, they seek your help and guidance. That's what we're doing with Almighty God and he's put into our lives, brethren and sisters, the circumstances to teach us these principles. So Nehemiah prays for the faithful ones in Israel, those who delight to, to revere his name and urges that the divine power be extended to those who seek him. Those who, like David, develop that love of God out of their heart. Not head, heart. The emotion, the powerful impulses of our body channeled into the divine love. Abraham, Abraham was led out of Egypt and the folly and foolishness of his action that brought him down there because of his intense love for God. I am his friend, said God. He was the friend of God. The publican in the parable of the Lord Jesus The publican said, God be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus Christ said he was, he went down justified more than the other. More than the pompous uh, Pharisee who, as Luke says, prayed within himself. That's terrible, brethren and sisters. In Luke chapter 18, he prayed to himself. He was his own God, that Pharisee. Oh, I'm not like other men. I fast three times in the week. Uh, I give this and I give that and I do the other. I'm not like that fellow. He was talking to himself. Because God wouldn't hear that prayer. He had not acknowledged his need of God. And he felt that God just, uh, God would, uh, um, God owed him his, his wishes. See, God can work with all our desires to revere his name and when we perceive his purpose. God can work with us under those circumstances. So he says, he prays that God would grant him mercy. You see, Nehemiah had already determined upon his plan. He knew what he, knew what he was going to do. So he committed up that Labour as an offering to God, he said, would you grant me mercy? He beseeched the divine blessing and thus he brought God into his action. That's the principles of true gospel proclamation work. Not when we go out distributing literature, but when we bring God in to cooperate with us. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's speaking of the king of Persia. He's speaking of his employer. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Now look at the note of explanation at the bottom of that chapter. After the prayer concludes, he says, For I was the king's cupbearer. There's a note of explanation to, in the official records to indicate what, why he was doing what he had set himself to do. And it reveals a most amazing example of faithfulness, courage and determination. I was the king's cupbearer. That was a position of high honour. That was a position of great, uh, great prominence in the court of Persia. The king's cupbearer. 
It indicated that the king of Persia had complete confidence in this man. He would trust him with his wine. Because, of course, it was very easy to have a traitor as a cupbearer and life is shortened considerably under those circumstances. It's so easy to administer poison in the king's cup and thus it was a position of great importance. An eastern potentate wouldn't have a cupbearer in a person whom he couldn't trust explicitly with his own life. That's an example we should act in the affairs of our lives, in matters of business, matters of labour. We've got the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians in chapter 3. It's the sort of attitude, brethren and sisters, upon which prayer can be properly presented to God when we act in the affairs of this life, in this world, yet not of this world, but in this world, we act consistently with our divine principles. So in verses 22 to uh, 24 of Colossians chapter 3, he says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. I was the king's cupbearer. Not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. So when a person goes to an employment, to his daily employment, he is serving God through his service to his master. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. We may be put into situations of stress and trial in our daily occupation. And though we are not called upon to, to uh, transgress the divine will in any respect, we stand apart from that. We will have no truck with that. But within the context of that, we are to provide a faithful and loyal service to a master, giving him his due. I was the king's cupbearer. The wine that he presented to the king of Persia was wine tasted and tested with his own life. Knowing that of the Lord, ye shall receive the reward of inheritance. He's talking to servants in employment knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of, in, of the inheritance. For you're serving Christ. That's whom you're serving when you go to your daily occupation. You're serving Jesus Christ, and Christ will reward us for faithful service in the menial duties of life. That's why this man prayed in Nehemiah chapter 1 that Yahweh would give him mercy in the sight of this man, for I am the king's cupbearer. It's obvious that Nehemiah could have remained in that position. He could, he could have remained in a position of opulence and wealth in the court of Persia, like Moses did when he was brought up for 40 years in the court of Pharaoh in such grand, grandeur and magnificence. He could have, Nehemiah, could have conveniently overlooked Hananiah's report. He could have salved his conscience he could have said, well that's unfortunate for those Jews there. That's unfortunate for that ecclesia. The brethren there should have looked after their spiritual welfare a little better. And he could have <coughs> denied his, the opportunity that Yahweh had given him to strengthen those in whose care he had opportunity. 
So when you come to chapter 2 of this book, you have a chapter that says that Yahweh creates opportunity and Nehemiah seizes it. He saw the hand of providence and that is absolutely essential to understanding this book. Yahweh creates the opportunity, Nehemiah seizes it. Four months passed since the prayer was offered. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. Four months had passed now, months of intense mental preparation, months of recognition of what was to, he ought to be doing, months, I believe, of prayer and, and meditation, and his purpose to approach the king for help is intensified as you have in verse 1, I took up the wine. It's now time to act, Nehemiah. He took up the wine and he gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. That was a dreadful situation. No wonder he said in verse 2, when the king said, uh, Nehemiah, um, why is thy countenance sad? You're not sick. If he had been sick, it would have been some reason. A person was not to be sad in the court of Persia. Sadness is contagious. The king didn't want to be sad. He didn't want to have a mournful looking cupbearer in front of him. It blighted his day, made the sun stop shining. He wanted some happiness and pleasure in his life. So he questioned why it was sad. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I was sore afraid. This man of courage, he was sore afraid because he knew what that meant. He would have suffered the same fate that they did in the French Revolution when heads rolled off, shoulders. And he was sore afraid. It was a capital offence to be sad in the king's, in the king's presence. But the feelings of Nehemiah were so great, brethren and sisters, that they couldn't be hid. Frightened men put trust in God. Frightened men realise the need of God. People who are not frightened have no trust in God. We've got to be frightened of our, of our enemy and put trust in God because that gives us confidence in the face of difficulties and trials. So in verse 4, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? And isn't this amazing, brethren and sisters? Between the, 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 the question of the king and the answer in verse 5, he prayed to God. Now he was already sore afraid because the king was annoyed. He's now passing, he's passing the wine cup to the king. Can you imagine if he said, oh just a moment king, and, and then bowed his head in prayer, what the king would have thought? He is praying as he is giving the cup to the king. His, he, his mind was in heaven at that moment before the king of all the earth. And his, though his lips did not move, his heart was beating out a prayer to God. That's why he says, so I prayed. That's a prayer. That needs to be coloured in that sentence. I prayed to the God of heaven. And as he said that, he said, let the king live forever. He was not sad because he had treachery in his heart. 
He gave some confidence unto the king. He said, there's no poison in this cup, O king. There's no treachery in the seat in the heart. And thus he, in verse, uh, verse 8, he says, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favour in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah. My, my changed countenance is because of the news of Jerusalem. He, said, he, he, he acknowledges to the king after his prayer. And isn't it amazing, brethren and sisters, when the king says in verse 4, For what doth thou make request? How can I help Nehemiah? He says to the king, I'm sorry, in verse, uh, yes, in verse 4. And then in verse 6 you have, And the king said unto me, The queen also sitting by him. That was unusual. More unusual to record such a detail in the official records. Imagine the, the scene, the majesty, the pomp, the ceremony, the procession, the glory of the palace of the king of Persia. He ruled the world, brethren and sisters. He was a king resplendent in his royal robes, majestic in his appearance, and the queen was sitting beside him. Who? What queen? Why does Nehemiah say that? What's it got to do with the, the issues? It seems as though that may have been Queen Esther. It seems that that was Queen Esther whose story is interlocked with the Persian court, as you notice in her book as well. If it was Queen Esther, and what, for what other reason we don't know it being recorded here, see how she was watching, she was carefully listening, her uncle Mordecai had taught her the truth. And she herself, a wonderful, faithful woman, had recognised that God in his mercy had put her into a position of, of great importance. Isn't it amazing how the hand of providence works in life, brethren and sisters? Years before, as the king and his queen Bastai were having a disturbance, that Yahweh was preparing that time for when Nehemiah's countenance was sad. And the queen Esther beside the king meant that there was an, a, a remarkable situation developed. All the external uh, glory of Gentilism about, that, about in that court and now Nehemiah hands the king the wine, he hears the king's question, for what does thou make request? But Nehemiah lifts his mind above all this and whilst he is automatically handing the wine, he is consciously praying to a greater king, he is actually standing before the king of heaven as servants do in their daily occupation. And he, like Moses, he feared not the wrath of the king because he saw him which is invisible. As he handed the, the cup to the king, he saw another king. We've got to see him too, brethren and sisters. We've got to see another king as we, as we go about our daily occupations seeing him that is invisible. When Pilate came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, look, I've got control over you. I can do what I like with you. Your, your people have brought me to you, to me, but I, can, I have all power. And the Lord said, you have, you have no power whatsoever unless it be given you from above. So he drew into his life 
the power of heaven in all these things. And in verse 8, uh, verse uh, 6, sorry, <coughs> the queen obviously was able to support Nehemiah's cause. God doeth all things well, brethren and sisters, certainly. We've got to remember to make known our request to him. First of John 5.15 says that. Make known your petitions to him in whatever circumstance of life you find yourself at whatever moment. Live with God at your hand and then you'll have good success. You see, in verse 8 he says, uh, towards the end of that verse, And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. We can colour that in another colour to the ones with the prayers. That's the hand of providence recognised. He saw the success of his petitions as a result of God's blessing. (coughs) And he left Persia, the court of Persia, with the blessing of God, with the help of the king, and with the support of his servants. So the letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, verse 8, was written that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And then this faithful warrior of God sets forth from Persia to Jerusalem. And like the Lord Jesus Christ's first appearance (coughs) in Jerusalem, Nehemiah's arrival was met with distaste, opposition, and anger from the enemies of the truth. Verse 9, I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Letters, now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly. There's anti-Semitism. It grieved them exceedingly that there should come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Sambalat and Tobiah the influential were notable men, notable enemies. The word Sambalat means the enemy is secret. Very apt for the devil. The enemy is secret. It's an index to his character and we'll meet him through this book as he secretly plots against Nehemiah but with the uh, with the uh, ever, with the presentation of friendship, it was a he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is a man of deceit and evil. He's the sort of man of which Judas was. Oh, I'm your disciple, Lord. Here I'm. Here I am. I'm walking with eleven others. After the treasury, I'm faithful. Uh, but he was. An enemy in secret. Sambalat probably was the governor of Samaria. Like the Pharisees, he was opposed to the saviour of Jerusalem. So here is the seat of the woman and the seat of the serpent. Here's Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Here's the great enmity of eternity. It's the challenge of the truth and error, brethren and sisters. And so often the enemy is secret. Even in our own hearts where we have the the devil uh, resident within us in our human nature, it's so easy to imagine that uh, we are doing right 
when we allow our own feelings to exude themselves. His friend, Tobiah the Ammonite, Tobiah means Yahweh is good. In the Hebrew, the word tov, T-O-B or T-O-V, is the word good. He evidently had accepted the teachings of the Samaritans who were uh, part Jewish. They had been uh, they derived from the Gentile influence into the Jewish community and that developed the Samaritan uh, gathering. So this man, Tobiah, had incorporated the divine name into his own. Yahweh is good. He used religion to achieve his scheming ends and he played havoc on the Ecclesia and we'll meet him again. We'll meet him in chapter 13. We'll meet him when Nehemiah returns the second time. Tobiah's still there, brethren and sisters, that a schemer, that's a seater, is still there right until the end of chapter 13 when he's excommunicated. Tobiah's with us always in a combination of religion and the flesh. And both these men combined in their opposition to Nehemiah. You see, it says here in, in that verse that it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. That word welfare is Tob, that, that part of the name of Tobiah, good. It grieved him that there was a man come to, to seek the good of the children of Israel. Whereas, uh, whereas um, Nehemiah had said, Remember me for good. Thus Tobiah was to Nehemiah what Judas was to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in these circumstances, as we inspect Nehemiah, we see him as a man of wisdom as well as work. His approach to Jerusalem, now from Persia, was filled with apprehension. It was met with apprehension. So he was there three days. You notice in verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. He did nothing in those days, or nothing recorded that is. It's like the Lord Jesus Christ in the grave. Three days. What Nehemiah was doing was consolidating his... his uh, uh, views, consolidating his thinking, preparing himself for the great work before him. So for three days he was quiet. He was given opportunity now to review the whole situation, to assess the position that faced him. He looked about him, he looked at the ecclesia, and he saw what was there. There were nobles there. He was not sure where they stood. He didn't know where they, their position was. There was Sambalat and Tobiah. He had seen them. He felt their impact. He was not able to trust them. There was the people about him. They were in disarray. They were in a ruins. They would been, had been discouraged by the constant re, uh, presence of these ruinous walls of Jerusalem. And they lacked the spiritual vitality to do something about it. They were overcome by the difficulty of the times. And then he looked at the walls. The foundation of their faith. Their statement of faith. And he recognised that the need to provide a good defence of a faith, a 
that was the most important work. He realised, brethren and sisters, that if the walls were to go up, they've got to go up quickly. They've got to go up like a flash. We can't mess about. We can't dilly-dally on this matter. The enemy is too strong. Otherwise, stymied by opposition, they could retaliate and knock them down. We've got to make sure the walls are firm. We've got to make sure they're on a good foundation. They are erect and vertical and powerful. If the work was long and detracted, the people would become despondent and they would become lax. So he saw, in verse 11, he saw that the walls must go out up immediately. The truth must be strengthened now. Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 21 and verse 34 says in his Olivet Prophecy, Take heed to yourselves, Luke 21, 34, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that they come upon you unawares. For as a snare it shall come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. It's a falling trap, brethren and sisters. He says, therefore, Watch ye and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. We've got to look at our situation. We've got to look at our ecclesial life, our individual and personal lives. And we've got to watch and pray lest the devil destroy it. So we've got to be diligent about it. We've got to make sure we're, we're working immediately and with great diligence in supporting the work of the truth and our own situation. Now, when he had determined that, he then put his plan into action. And we have that from verse 12 to verse 20 of this chapter. Having reviewed the situation, he determined what must be done and now sees how it can be done, how it is possible to accomplish his designs. In verse 12, he commences a tour of the city. There's a tour by him and his disciples. I arose in the night and I and a few men with me. His disciples, a lonely small band of disciples with Nehemiah, goes forth. He rides on a a mule. And when he rode around the city, he saw before him (coughs) broken down walls, He saw burnt gates. He saw heaps of rubble and ruin and fallen masonry. And he could see into the hearts of the people who were discouraged by this because his father's house had been made a den of thieves had been pulled down and destroyed. And he says as he goes around this, he, he, he looks at it in verse 12 he says, Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon, and I went out by night. By night he went out. So that they could not see and destroy his work. We're working in the night time, brethren and sisters. This is the night time. We're waiting for the day to come when the Lord will return, but we work in the night time. And he views all parts of the walls to plan his work. Nothing misses his gaze. He's a very diligent leader in the ecclesial circles. He carefully notes in these official documents here the areas of his inspection. Let's have a look at them. In verse 13, I went out by night, 
by the gate of the valley. That was the entrance to the gate, uh, that was the entrance to the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. That was the rubbish dump of the city. Earlier, Jeremiah had walked out the valley gate, as recorded in Jeremiah's chapters 18 and 19. He had walked out the valley gate, and he had broken a vessel, a potter's vessel, against the city, against a city which had despised its inheritance, and he had proclaimed, as you have it in those chapters, I will make this city a desolation and a hissing and a disgrace. And he performed what the Lord Jesus later performed when he threw out the money changers and said, you've made this a den of thieves. Destined to be burnt and destroyed. And that was what had happened. Now the time had come for a saviour. Nehemiah had arrived. And he commenced to walk in the very place of Ezekiel's, of Jeremiah's prophecy. And similarly, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, brethren and sisters, He's coming back at the end of the night before the dawn to inspect his family first before the world. First of Peter chapter 4 verse 17 says that judgment must begin at the house of God. He's going to come back and he's going to look at us who are the gates of the city. He's going to inspect us and determine whether we have uh, the ability to be preserved in his kingdom. And next he goes to the dung gate, as you have in verse 13, the dung port. Jeremiah had proclaimed the destiny of Jerusalem. He said it would become a disgrace in the eyes of the nations. In Jeremiah chapter 16 and at verse 4, he has some very remarkable words. Jeremiah chapter 16 verse 4 it says concerning Jerusalem they shall die of grievous deaths they shall not be lamented neither shall they be buried but they shall be as done upon the face of the earth they shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth they shall become dung upon the ground that's what Yahweh thought of their religion and though they said the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh are we and we are the sons and daughters of Abraham, <coughs> Yahweh saw that they were merely just refuse, that they would become dung in the eyes of the nations. And now in Nehemiah 2 verse 3, as he comes to this particular gate and records it, he indicates that a, a redeemer had come to resurrect the city and the people out of the refuse of the earth. Out of the refuse of human nature, as it were. His next place is the king's hall. I went to the, I'm sorry, it was the gate of the fountain. I went to the gate of the fountain, verse 14. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, Yahweh has a complaint against the people. He says, look, you've forsaken me. You've forsaken the fountain of living waters. You've hewed yourself out cisterns, broken cisterns in which there is no water. And Nehemiah comes to the gate of the fountain. He sets his feet upon this place to restore vitality and truth to the nation. 
And each of these gates recorded here have a very great impact upon the spiritual condition of the people and what he was going to do. After he was at the gate of the fountain, he came to the king's hall. This has been a hall that was constructed by Hezekiah at a time of great distress and difficulty for the nation. The king's hall was used to measure, uh, was, a, was, a, was an area used to preserve the life-giving waters that came from the spring Gaihos. It was a, it was a container to, you, to preserve those waters, to prevent the enemy from seizing those life-giving waters that meant so much to Jerusalem. And so, with the waters flowing into the king's pool, the people would be protected in the city from the advance of the enemy and from the siege. But it had fallen into disrepair. People had allowed the life-giving principles of the truth to dissipate. The Bibles had been closed. The spirit word had been forgotten. And Jerusalem's water was open to the use of the enemy. So, Nehemiah notes the king's Paul in his plan to restore life to Jerusalem. He would <coughs> protect the source of life from destruction. He would protect the truth from apostasy. That's the pur- purpose of that. The next one was the gate of the valley, verse 15. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back now and entered by the way of the gate of the valley and so returned. So he entered again by the way he came in firstly. I mean he went out by the way he had entered in. He had entered in by the gate of the valley. He had come out of the gate of the valley having traversed all the walls and noted their needs. And then he gathered the people together to make a personal appeal, as you have it in verses 17 and 18. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, come let us build up the walls of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. So also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. He had noted the desperate condition of the city. It was a reproach. The truth was a reproach. That after so long, the city could still reveal the evidence of neglect. Since the first return had been achieved. And it was a subject of ridicule by the world. As we'll see when we come to it later, Sanballat and, or look, verse 19, Sanballat and uh, Tobiah and Gishon, they laughed us to scorn saying, well, <coughs> what's this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? They laughed us to scorn. It was a subject of reproach as far as the, the truth was concerned. It was a subject of ridicule and that ridicule reflected upon the God of Nehemiah, upon the king he served. We've got to remember, brethren and sisters, that slipshot slip shot methods adopted ecclesially can bring a life reproach upon us. The servant who knew his Lord's will, Luke chapter 12, 45, the servant who knew his Lord's will but prepared not himself 
neither did according to his will will be appointed his portion with the unbelievers. And now as a true shepherd, Nehemiah acted. First he had presented the problem that the people were distressed, that the city walls were defenceless and deserted, the gates were burned, and there was a mere blackened gaping holes in the walls. Then he said, he made an appeal, let us recognise and repair the reproach. The third was a principle of encouragement, a practical evidence that if it was, that it was God's will that they should engage upon the work in season and out of season. And finally, he says, the time was propitious. As you have it in verse 19, he had stated that the work of providence, the hand of providence was working on their behalf as evidenced by the actions and the words of the king of Persia. But by then the world had retaliated. Will ye rebel against the king? We're brought up in conscientious objection to military service by the enemies of the truth. Will ye rebel against the king? Under those difficulties, under those trials, what is the answer of Nehemiah? It's in verse 20, brethren and sisters. Then answered I, and I said unto them, the God of heaven. Not the king of Persia, the God of heaven. He will prosper us. That's why we're his servants, and that's why we, his servants, will arise and build. But as for you, you've got no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. The enemy had used three barbed weapons. Verse 19. Scorn, hatred, and threats. Three arrows. Scorn, hatred, threats. Nehemiah answered those in three ways. He said, the enemies of the truth have no portion, right, nor memorial. They've got no portion, no inheritance in the city that we are, we are building. They've got no right. Hebrew word is, is, is righteousness or justification. They've got no justification to, in the work in which it is being accomplished and they have no memorial there. Their fathers are not buried there, but ours are, brethren and sisters. Our fathers are buried in the faith. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and their promise of glory and immortality with whom we are associated. So with Nehemiah, we can rest confident that if we put our hands to the work, then Yahweh will bless us and our enemies, those strong at this moment, will ultimately be defeated.